Evan Clark is the founder and creative director of Spectrum Experience, the nation's first private humanist consulting firm that has also been behind the campaigns of several atheists running for local, state, and federal office. His candidates just had a wildly successful primary day in Arizona this past week. Evan is also chair of the Secular Student Alliance and co-host of the Humanist Experience podcast. Evan, thanks so much for being with me. Yeah, excited to be here. Okay, so tell me about this idea of the of Spectrum Experience and what it is, because I think in atheist circles anyway, this is really unusual to have kind of like a communications group, a PR firm that really is functioning as like a consulting firm for atheists trying to run for office. How does that even begin? Absolutely. So um, Sarah Blaine, my business partner, we actually met at a Secular Student Alliance conference Oh man, in 2011, uh, we were both speakers. At the time, she was the uh, lobbyist, the full-time staff member for the Secular Coalition of Arizona, doing First Amendment work out here in Arizona. And I was just graduated from college, just joined the board of directors of the National Secular Student Alliance, and um, was just founding a community group out in California at the time. And we just connected for the first time, right? And from there, we went back to the awesome stuff we were doing in different states. Um, But we kind of followed each other's activism for a few years. Um, And I started this company out in California to actually work on social justice education. So Spectrum originally was a uh, camp uh, company. We were going to do social justice workshops for students in high school and colleges. um, And I modeled it after some stuff I did in college. To educate them about what? Uh, power, privilege, prejudice, uh, stereotypes. It, it was really kind of an educational forum. So um, but we used experience general progressive ideals in a sense. Exactly. But I, I mean, yes, I, I, now I would call them humanist values, but at yeah. the time I only had social justice language. Sure. And yeah, it's, what do you know? It's really hard to start a company uh, <laughs> fresh out of college. It takes a lot of time and money, both of which I didn't have as much as I thought I did. Um, so it kind of stumbled along for a little bit. And then I finally organized our first camp, right? I had this uh, Southern California. We were in the mountains, uh, Big Bear, outside of Los Angeles. And I organized this first camp, and I recruit 15 students to come to it. And I get funding from some local colleges. And I was going to have six volunteer staff members. And three of them backed out 48 hours before the camp. Oh, no. So I call up my old buddy, Sir Blaine, in Arizona, and I go, do you know anybody that might be able to help me out last minute volunteering? I know this is nuts, but is there anyone that would possibly come volunteer for my camp? And she goes, you know, I can, I can make it. And the next day she drives out to California and volunteers for uh, my week-long camp. And it was an incredible experience. Everything went well, but to date, that's still the only camp I've run. (laughs) And that was uh, January of 2014. And literally like three or four weeks later, she calls me up and goes, my good friend is a blind atheist who wants to run for Congress in the most conservative district in America. (laughs) Um, How would you feel about being one of the three people to run his campaign? And that was it. I moved to Cal- I moved to Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, and we started the James Woods campaign. And what was interesting is it was my first time in politics, um, and Sarah hadn't worked on a political campaign in many years. And um, 
uh, J.P. Martin, our third person that helped us, hadn't worked on a congressional campaign before. But from the beginning, we worked with James and decided we were going to run the most humanist campaign we could think of. You know, from top to bottom, how do we infuse humanism into this campaign and work on humanist values? And that's how it all started. That campaign ended. Sarah and I went into business together and decided we're going to work on humanist values full time. We're going to try to make a career out of changing the world and making it more humanist. And um, our skills and opportunity have seemed to align around politics the most. What did you learn about politics in general? Because if you told me, Hemant, you're working on a political campaign, I have tons of ideas for what I might do What I because I watch enough of it on TV and read about it now. But like you actually went in the trenches. So what was different from what you thought it would be when you were working on the Woods campaign? Uh, are you saying what's different now from two years ago? No, or, what or, was different? What did you... Uh, what was unexpected when you started to work on the campaign where you thought, wow, I never knew this was involved in politics? <laughs> oh, man, there's so much. It's hard to see where to start. I, I think the most shocking thing was um, realizing how, frankly, inexperienced and irrational so many of the decisions of all the campaigns around you are. <laughs> I think I had this... I still have idealism in a lot of ways around politics, which makes me one of the few left. But there are lots of people working in politics right now that have not looked at the research behind the decisions they're making, right? Political science is actually very well studied. And people are often just doing what the campaign the year, the cycle before did. Uh, there are people that have been in this for 20 years and they're making awful decisions constantly. And here I am coming in as a newbie going like, okay, let's look at that. Let's actually look that up or let's, let's ask a few other people and see what they think. And my mind was blown at how much tradition and baggage there is in the political system. Um, and w what was exciting about that, though, is it left a lot of room for innovation and trying new things. And especially long shot campaigns, which um, we've spent most of our time working on, there's more opportunity to do that. Uh, there's a lot of pressure that comes down when you work on a high stakes campaign, whether it be from the party or major donors. And working on some of the long shot campaigns we've done, we've been able to try some pretty exciting and radical things. And um, yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It's well, just fun. I recommend more people get involved. <laughs> so we'll talk about the current campaigns in a second. But what's one of the examples of something radical that you did just because it was a long shot candidate? Sure. So... I think a lot of candidates are afraid to um, talk about controversial issues or find creative ways to talk about those issues. Um, so you'll even be amazed by some of your most famous politicians in your state, how often they, they not how often, how, how little they interact with um, controversial topics. And so we actually did three things on the James Woods campaign that were semi-viral or fully viral. First one was we had him come out immediately at the forefront of the campaign as an open atheist. Um, he decided, and he'd been open in the atheist community for a while. He was on a billboard with Freedom From Religion Foundation uh, talking about secularism. And he, he decided he was going to make this a uh, top issue in his campaign. And so we had an atheist media day and, and really made it an important topic in our campaign. Um, but second, and this was the most viral moment of our campaign, was a feminist issue we interacted with. In Arizona, I'm sure this happens in other places around the country, um, local candidates often get these letters from pro-life groups. These are like 
sometimes handwritten notes or form letters where people sign. And it starts off with 53 million unborn babies have died since Roe v. Wade. Are you going to stand up and uh, fight for overturning Roe v. Wade? And we just kept getting these week after week in the mail. And we decided one day, you know what? We should reply to this. I bet nobody ever replies to these. And so we decided to write this beautiful form letter that said, sure, we're against abortion. And here's all the ways to actually that are proven to lower abortion rates, right? Uh, reproductive uh, education and sex education and um, uh, preventative actions like birth control and condoms, things that these groups. So if actually you really do. want to reduce the abortion <laughs> rates like you claim you do, here's what we should do. Exactly right. Trying to kind of flip the argument back on them. Um, and we wrote this beautiful letter and just kind of sat staring at it for a while going, this is great, but what else could we do? What else could we send them? And we brainstormed it for about two hours and came up with the idea. What if we stuck a condom in the letter? <laughs> and then we were like, no, nah, that's not enough. What if we put a sticker on the condom that said prevent abortion and put our campaign logo on it and put it in the letter. And so we did that. We, we bought 300 condoms. We had all said prevent abortion and giant letters on them, put them in this letter, mailed it off to them. And we told the media what we did and it exploded. We were imagine. on every feminist blog in the country, <laughs> a few pro-life blogs. Um, you know, when you wake up and you're on Jezebel and yeah. it's a pic picture of you holding a condom, it was pretty exciting. So, I mean, and that's the sort of thing then, is that the sort of thing that might backfire in a very red district or was it something that, you know what, we were a long shot and it brought in donations, it brought attention, that's all good. It was, and that's exactly what happened. It brought in tons of money for our campaign. Um, it, it brought in a ton of attention for our campaign. We were getting messages from people all around the country going, how exciting it is. I want political figures to be bold and challenge um, this this anti-choice movement. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, but I feel like we teach politicians and we teach campaign managers to not be bold. You know, th the biggest fear they have is to be on the wrong side of a PR issue. And um, I don't know. I, I just, I can't be, I can't live that way. If I believe in these ethical positions, I need to stand up for them and fight for them. And sometimes that means being bold. It means innovating how we talk about these issues. And we spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, but to say a larger campaign couldn't is absurd. And uh, so it's a big fight of mine to encourage more candidates to be bold. If they care about these issues, find creative ways to speak about them rather than avoiding them. And we've tried to do that ever since we've been involved. So James Woods, uh, I don't even know if another Democrat ran against him, but he, he had the primary in the bag. But then he lost the general campaign, uh, which was not a surprise because, like we said, it was a long shot, very red uh, district, and it was against an incumbent, I believe. Uh, was that a successful campaign then that you ran, would you say? Or was it like, you know what, we, we knew this was going to happen, it's disappointing, or we didn't know this was going to happen, we thought we had a chance, and it was disappointing? So funny story, election night, 2014, uh, we went to this giant party that the Arizona Democratic Party uh, organized in downtown Phoenix. And they had all of their, a few of their major candidates were there. And um, yeah, we show up, we've got our whole campaign team and James, they're going to let him do a concession speech. And we're getting calls from humanist and atheist leaders around the country like, oh, we're so sorry that your candidate lost. And we couldn't even pick up the phone because we were celebrating so much. <laughs> our, our campaign was a huge success. 
I think what people need to realize is some of these campaigns are absolute long shots, but it doesn't mean you can't still accomplish something. There's still tons of value in working on cultural change, even if you can't affect political power. So Bernie Sanders is actually a beautiful example of this. Most people would argue that Bernie Sanders running was still important, even if he knew he was going to lose from the beginning. He held the party left. He talked about issues that weren't being talked about. He turned out new voters and brought them into the political process. Those are important. And it doesn't matter if he was a losing candidate. He added something extremely positive to the political system. And I think we can do that with all long shot campaigns, not just Bernie Sanders and presidential campaigns. It's funny, so, in, 2015, so I, in 2015, Gallup released, released their poll, they do it every uh, couple of years, where they say, if you could vote for anyone in your political party who is a blank, would you vote for that person? And if you look at, you know, would you vote for a woman? I think it's in the 90 per, 90% somewhere. If Would you vote for a black person? Yes, almost everyone would do that. Would you vote for a gay person? I think like three quarters of the population said, yeah, if a gay person ran in my party, I that, that wouldn't bother me. I would still consider voting for that person. And atheist has always been lowest on that list since forever. But in 2015, they added socialist to their mix of numbers and socialist was the lowest number on the list. But that was before the Sanders campaign really hit its stride. And I'm really curious to see the next time they do that uh, survey, I'm pretty sure socialist won't be as big of a problem as it used to be, even though it may still be on lower end of that list. And it's going to be because of Bernie Sanders campaign. So to your point, yeah, if atheists are running for office and they're public about it, which rarely happens, we could actually see that change, which may not help that particular candidate. But down the line, it's like, oh, it's an atheist running. I mean, I've seen that before. That doesn't bother me. Let's move on to the issues. Well, And that's what we need. We need people to trailblaze. We're in an era where atheism is not mixed with politics. We're told it's taboo, that you're absolutely going to lose elections, and that we're shunned from it. And the only way we're going to change that is when we start normalizing it. We, and, and somebody has to trailblaze to do that. And so with the James Woods campaign, we decided, and, and we've had a few politicians before then that have been pretty openly non-religious, but once they get elected, they back off from it. Yes. Uh, we've had a, a large name in Arizona that, that, that did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the one unaffiliated member of Congress now. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. And so, <laughs> And, and this is consistent. It's happened to our movement constantly. You know, politicians will take our money and they will give us lip service and then they will stab us in the back, right? Mm-hmm. And this happened to other social movements too. When you look at uh, the women's rights movement, when you look at the gay rights movement, they they had lip service from certain groups and then it was looked at, oh, you're political untouchables and so I now need to back off from you. But we need to realize that they are always going to be running for re-election. So this problem is not going to go away by electing people that won't stand with us. We have to be in their face. We have to organize. And we have to have some people brave enough to inspire the next generation to be open about their atheism and politics. So let's talk about what you're doing right now. How many candidates are you working with for the 2016 cycle? Oh, I'm losing track. Yeah, it's it's several of them. So we, um, we have consulted uh, somewhere in the range of uh, 
12 to 15 campaigns this cycle in Arizona. Um, but we are heavily involved in organizing, campaign managing, and doing PR consulting for about six of them. Okay. And how are they doing so far? I mentioned at the top that everyone seemed to have successful primaries. Um, very few of the atheist candidates I'm watching have like been knocked out of the race at this stage. A lot of them are still in it. What do you expect to see? What do you hope to see this November? So, yeah, looking back at primary night just a few days ago, we had huge wins for humanists and atheist candidates on the ballot. Um, so while every candidate we're working with won their primary, most of them are not in contested races, right? But the few that were, um, that were some in very contested races, they pulled off some incredible wins last night. And so I'll tell you about a few of those. Juan Mendez, who is the only open atheist in the state legislature in Arizona right now and is pretty nationally known for the, the prayer he did a few years back, the humanist invocation he did that went viral. Um, he was trying to run for the state Senate. He'd previously been in the state house for the past few years and was in a tight race and he clobbered his opponent. So, um, and I should note, he's in such an extremely blue district that winning the primary is basically winning the general. So, so we I, may I, soon see a state senator who's an open atheist in Arizona. So we should have Maybe. a state senator who is openly atheist in Arizona. Almost absolutely. Wow. I also want to talk about uh, Athena Salmon, who was running for Juan's former seat. And so she came out as an open atheist during her campaign. We consulted her on that process. And um, through and through, she's been extremely open about that. And she has a Middle Eastern and Mexican background. She's a, a beautifully diverse addition to the state legislature. She was in a tight race. There were four candidates running for two seats. Uh, in that primary, and she was the top vote getter for that district. So Athena will be moving on to the general election. And again, same district as Juan, extremely blue, huge chance, uh, almost undeniable, she will be in the state legislature as an open atheist. So Juan will no longer be alone in the state legislature. That's fantastic. Let's hope that plays out. So when you say you're consulting with these candidates, let me ask you about that. In general, how should atheists run for office, whether it's at a local, uh, state, or federal level? Maybe it's a different answer for each, but should they be open about it? Should they be vocal? Should they just say it once at the beginning and never mention it again? What is the advice you give to people? So uh, the advice we give to everybody, and, and this is a value of our firm, is be authentic, right? I, I think you go down a slippery slope the second you start feeling like you have to hide everything from everyone or... You have to lie about something. So first and foremost, be authentic. Now, we understand there are some realities, right? You might be in a race or an area where there are certain issues or identities about yourself that are extremely difficult to discuss. And we are not going to encourage you to make those your forefront issues if we know you're in a tight race and that could be the difference between you win or losing. But ultimately, what we encourage most of the candidates we work with in long shot or non long shot districts. Um, and I think in the long shot districts, you have actually more opportunity to speak to identity politics is be bold and open about it, but then just work like hell on the issues you care about. Um, you know, you are a person that is complex and has lots of issues you care about. And there shouldn't be one thing that you are defined by for the rest of your life. So, I think in a lot of ways, 
Uh, and what I want to eventually see more and more of is atheism is such a small subnote about who you are or um, and we can actually talk about the issues you care about and the humanist values that got you there. Every time I write about this issue or talk about it, I always get the same type of comment, which is, why does this matter? We have separation right. of church and state. Who cares about their label, whether it's one that matches mine or one that doesn't? Like, I don't care if that politician is a Christian, if they share my values. Why should I care if this person is an atheist? Like, that shouldn't make me want to vote for them anymore. So why is this a big deal? This is a big deal because of the history of American politics and that Pew research you brought up. So there are non-religious candidate, uh, non-religious leaders in our communities today that will not run for office, even though they are often the most qualified people in their community to run because they feel their identity keeps them out. And I can't think of a larger failure of democracy then. We are failing ourselves and our country if we are keeping groups of people out of the process. And so being bold about our identity even if it's just as a reaction to the demagoguery we've faced over the past decades, past few decades, is extremely important. It's how our community can be respected. It's how our community can make progress. So while ultimately I think the ideals that they're striving for in those comments are important, and I want us to think of religion as the least important part about somebody someday, that is not the reality of our current political process. We have people that are voting based on if you believe in God or not in some cases. And we know this and there's research to back this up. And so it's very important for some people to leverage identity for our community so that we can organize and counteract it so that we can work towards that future that these people think they're living in. But it, that's not the reality of today. So let me ask you a question. There is a candidate right now, uh, Jamie Raskin. He's running for Congress in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, Maryland. I, Maryland. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's running for Congress in Maryland. And the rumor, at least online, as far as I've heard in humanist circles, is that this guy is an open atheist, or he is an atheist anyway. But when he was confronted by the Washington Post about this question, he very much kind of backed off that label. He said, I'm a lowercase, I'm not quoting him here, but I'm a lowercase h humanist. I love people, and I support separation of church and state. Uh, and to me, and I think a lot of people, that almost felt like a cop-out, like you can't, you don't want to say, because you're in a tough race, you're in a tough primary, but this is this is a question. If you, I know you're not working with his campaign officially, or I don't know unofficially. But like, what would you suggest? Is he making the right move here by saying I'm just taking this off the table and I don't want this to be an issue? I want to get into office where I can make you know a difference for progressives. Or would you say he's doing a disservice because if he is an atheist, uh, he says I think uh, he says he's Jewish, but that's more of a ethnic kind of uh, identity marker than. I believe in the Torah or something like that. Um, is he doing a disservice or is it a more strategic, like, all right, I'll let you go because I support your values and I just, I want you to be in office. So I'm, I'm not going to get in. I don't know about his personal identity or not. I've, I've never met the man. I'm not, we're not consulting his campaign. I can openly say that. Um, and, and I will say if I put this in a larger context, that, that, it's not a new problem, right? We've dealt with this with uh, the aforementioned candidate in Arizona who had, um, 
so so both Jamie and this candidate, uh, this congresswoman in, in Arizona, we're talking about have raised money from the atheist community, have quietly interacted with or been members of the secular community for a long time, and then the second they got elected, um, basically started rejecting the label, which. Right of course, feels like being stabbed in the back. Right. Um, in the case of the congresswoman, I think her campaign manager actually said the title of atheist wasn't, quote, befitting of her life's work or something like that. Yes, ex- extremely troublesome, right? Yeah. Um, but to me, it really comes down to short-term versus long-term goals and what issues are most important to you. And for me, working for underrepresented or marginalized communities are my top issue. And ultimately... It takes lots and lots of time to make progress on those issues. And the investments I'm making in politics, and my, generally most of the candidates I'm working with, they're making in politics, every decision they make, I think of on 10 or 20 or 30-year scales rather than two-year scales. And this is an important distinction because I, I, I get into fights with people in politics all the time about this. And I, I think... Um, people get at loggerheads with party officials often about this in local and national politics, because so often people care more about short-term power and they will do almost anything to achieve that. And they think once you have that short-term power, you'll be able to make awesome progress, but progress takes decades often. And what's needed for that progress is usually, um, systems built under that, right? We, we need cultural Let's, I'm trying to think of a cultural issue that is so unpopular today that um, you just can't imagine progress on it. But if you worked on cultural change for the next 20 or 30 years, we could see progress on that. Uh, let's say like banning eating meat or something. Let's grab an extreme. Okay. Um, for ethical reasons, let's say the government wants to ban eating meat. Today, there is no way you could pass that law, right? But if you wanted to try to pass that law... You, if you worked on a legislative strategy, I still I think it is not feasible to happen in a short period of time, even if you were to capture an entire legislative body. You all would be voted after, out of office the second you pass that law. You know what's interesting? I think the only other atheist state senator I can think of, uh, Ernie Chambers in Nebraska, he's been in uh, this, the unicameral Nebraska legislature forever. Like it's been, man, 30 to 40 years that he's been an elected representative in that legislature. And from the moment he got in there every year, he passed, he, he sponsored a bill to, uh, to overturn the death penalty and it sure. never worked every single year. He brought it up, but the tides eventually started changing and they finally had enough votes. Maybe it was last year to for not just for the bill to pass and eliminate death penalty in that state, but even when the Republican governor vetoed it, they had exactly the number of votes you needed to override his veto. And that's the sort of thing. He's been working on this for decades, but right. it took until this moment for it to actually happen. And if all you care about is short-term power, you would or or short-term progress or power, you would advise him not to put those bills forward, right? You would tell him, don't talk about this issue. There's other issues we can actually make progress on. Why are you wasting your time on it? And I would argue it was extremely important for him to work on that legislation. It led to the progress and organizing and building of future leaders to work on that issue that ultimately got it passed. And if we think about issues like gay rights in America, and you think about 
if we were able to organize earlier and challenge politicians earlier, if we were able to stop politicians from not standing with the gay community until the early 2000s and actually have that progress in the 90s or 80s, think of how many lives would still be here today. Let me ask you a couple more questions before I let you go. One is that I believe you actually ran for office in college at a place where you were probably a long shot candidate too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And like, how do you get elected to office when pretty much you would think the student body is against you? Sure. So I attended California Lutheran University, small little liberal arts school in Thousand Oaks, California. And uh, by my freshman slash sophomore year, I founded the Secular Student Alliance on campus And so instantly, I'm the best-known atheist on campus. (laughs) And uh, yeah, tour guides are talking about this new club we have and religious diversity on campus. And um, yeah, anyway, so I I organized this club and I'm working on that for a few years. And I also was on student government. So um, I'd been working on our programs board, which is the other half of our, our two congressional systems, whatever. And uh, yeah, my junior year, I decided to run for student body president. And it was a blast. Um, I I have to say religion didn't really come up in that race. So I I won't talk about that too much. In a lot of ways, it it was boring in that sense. Uh, It was me and this other really active government, uh, student government student, and then one other guy that really wasn't that involved. And I won the kind of primary election, then I won the general election. And then I defeated the <laughs> challenge to that election. They were, were trying to challenge it. But anyways, um, I, you, you organize the same way. I, I would encourage if you, if you want to win a race rather than you're a long shot and you're just trying to work on cultural change, if you really want to win a race, the most important thing is putting in the hard work required. You have to organize. You have to knock on and doors. You have to talk to as many people as possible. And all the research backs this, too, in political science. Uh, personal contact is the most persuasive people, persuasive way to work with people. And all the winning candidates we're working with right now, that's exactly the model they're using. They're knocking on more doors than their opponents. They are, are speaking publicly. They are organizing the largest volunteer networks. And it, it's that simple. It's been that way for hundreds of years. you got to get out there and you got to interact with people. And you've got to sell the the future you're going to work on and last question for you how i mean whatever happens in november this is a remarkable thing that we're seeing almost like a dozen openly atheist candidates in arizona running for these mostly state and federal offices that's incredible how do we replicate that in other states what would you suggest people do just go ahead go if you are interested start running for office, start running for smaller, like city council offices, PTA boards. I mean, or I'm not PTA school boards, but like, what would you suggest people do? Well, yes, absolutely. Everyone needs to start thinking about running for office or encouraging those that would be great for running for office to run for office. If you look at the religious right, they had started building a base for political leaders at the very bottom. They started running for school board. They started running for city council And it was incredibly successful. So from a movement perspective, you have to constantly be thinking about how we're involved with politics. But if we're talking about replicating Arizona, I think that's a really unique uh, question. Because 
Arizona made an investment years ago that is still paying off today. And they organized one of the most active and successful state chapters of the Secular Coalition of America. And they did something very bold. They hired somebody full time. And they had a lobbyist in the state legislature. And that lobbyist was able to build connections with the political leaders, was able to work with Juan Mendez as he came out as a non-religious uh, representative. It was able to organize on the grassroots for the, the tons of secular communities that are all around Arizona and connected them to the political system. That one moment right there led to, uh, I think, people like James Woods coming out of the woodwork. It, it led to people like Sra and I feeling like we can start a consulting firm here that has a base of support we can work with. I think you need more active lobbyists in the state legislature. You need more consulting firms like ours, encouraging candidates and supporting candidates. And then you need a base of candidates all around the state. And that starts with grassroots organizing. If you look at movements and you study movements, it's not someone comes in at the top and is able to just write a book and change everything. If you're talking about long-term change, it's the hard work of organizing people. It's almost frustrating uh, that when you see some of the third-party presidential candidates, it's like they only run one race and it's the one at the very top of the ticket. And if you really want to build a movement, it would make way more sense to just get a bunch of people in that political party to run for a lot of smaller, winnable offices. And maybe it would be easier down the line to run for those big, long-shot uh, offices, too. Exactly. And, and that's, that's how I feel about this. Spectrum um, or whatever other consulting firms like us that are out there, I hope that we're in this for the long haul. We are movement-building so we like to think that what we're doing is political humanism. And we define that as um, engaging with politics, uh, strategically leveraging politics to, to spread humanist values. And there's huge opportunities right now. The political system is so much more accessible than people think it is. And, um, and we're going to make progress. Well, Evan, thank you so much. Good luck to you and Sarah and all of your candidates at Spectrum Experience. And we're definitely keeping a close eye on what happens. And you're one of the reasons all of that is happening. So thanks again. Appreciate it.